<laughs> Hello and welcome to Young Nostalgia, the podcast that takes a trip down memory lane from two guys that never lived it. I'm Nolan and as always, Ben is beside me. We thank you for joining us as we talk about our passion for the past while being young at heart. We haven't derailed as much as usual on this on this episode, um, but we kind of had a stint before we hit record as always. It's like 20 uh, seconds in, give it some time. <laughs> <laughs> Give it some time. Um, today we're, we're going to be talking and rounding up our short little series of the rough and tough guys from Hollywood. We're gonna we're gonna end on a high note with the Duke, none other than John Wayne Ellington. <laughs> no, just John Wayne. You know what? Nobody laughed at that joke. Um, anyway, it's been great to do this show, um, and if you have. You know, any ideas for future shows or you'd really like to give us some feedback, we'd love positive or critical feedback. Positive feedback if you're on, um, uh, you know, po- um, platforms that you can uh, rate us, give us a positive rate. And if you have any criticism, please feel free to give us an email, youngnostalgia2017 at gmail.com. So we're going to be talking about John Wayne today. Um, the show is called We're the Stuff Men Are Made Of. I'm trying to beef <laughs> our podcast up a little bit. But in reality, John Wayne said, I'm the stuff. Men is made of. Men are made of. Men is but, made of. <laughs> the hell. Uh, so, just a forewarning. Um, ben is much more of a of a dumpster. Not not a dumpster. Dumpster. Not, he. What? <laughs> I meant to say Ben is much more of a expert. I was gonna is say it, like he is can, a he can dumpster dive deeper into this. I was gonna say he can dumpster dive deeper into John Wayne than I can. Um, mm. He knows a little bit more. Okay. <laughs> I think that was a Freudian slip there. That's what you really were thinking. <laughs> ben smells. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I just don't want to sit here like a bump on a pickle and ben, <laughs> ben talk most of the time. Um, but I will definitely chime in with as much as possible. But we thought John Wayne would be a great inclusion to this short little stint of series, um, like usual. But anyway, before we get started, since I talked about life last time, do you have any funny, interesting stories to share? <laughs> I didn't win any radio tickets this week. Oh, that's lame. I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> but some somehow you got you got you're in charge of you're the newest kid on the block at your job, and you're, you're in charge of eighteen year old interns. Yeah, well, they're not eighteen, um, but. Yes, they're interns. I don't really know how that happened to where I'm leading leading the interns. Um, I guess that is, you know, shows that my employer trusts me. But it's also stressful at the same time because, you know, they're good guys. But being interns, you got to hold their hand the whole time. So Yeah, well, that's true. Well, it's either, either your employer trusts you or they just don't like the interns so they know that you would screw them up. <laughs> So then they don't have to keep them. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true as well. That one's a little less flattering on my part. Love you too, dumpster. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So just like last episode, I thought I could try myself at a little bit of rhetoric. We're actually turning gears into the actual episode instead of talking about nonsense. So about John Wayne getting into uh, who he was as a person as well as through his career. So born... Uh, Marion Robert Morrison on May 26th, back in 1907 in Winterset, Iowa. John Wayne would become one of the most iconic actors throughout the 20th century with his larger-than-life appeal and ability to portray American values as well as ideals on and off the screen. 
John Wayne's career would eventually touch a multitude of commercial outlets to include radio as well as charity work. Wayne's prominence in pop culture and his way of putting so much meaning into so simple words has earned him a rightful place in Hollywood as none other than the Duke. Wayne's family would move to Glendale, uh, California, where he would then spend the rest of his childhood. And from there, we kind of dive into his early career um, and then is pretty much sayonara from there. And uh, Ben, why don't you (laughs) tell us about how John Wayne guys start? All right. Well, uh, we're going to kind of skip a little bit of the childhood and stuff that uh, we've talked about with other guys. Um, There's so much in John Wayne's career that you know, we kind of have to pick and choose what we're going to cover and what not to in a regular half hour to 45 minute show. Um, so right off the bat, mm-hmm. talking about du- the Duke, uh, John Wayne's nickname of Duke actually originates from a fireman who called him Little Duke, uh, as John would never be seen without his Airedale Terrier Duke while going to school and passing the firehouse. So that's not a name that he acquired. Um, you know, once he was already an established actor in show business, you know, that was something that he carried with him through his childhood and into mm-hmm. his career, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it, it was interesting because, um, you know, there's a little blib where John Wayne actually preferred the name Duke over his actual name. Right. Um, and that's just kind of, you know, how he would portray himself to other people. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, just call me Duke. Yeah. And that that's always pretty cool. Um, as a teenager, he worked in an ice cream shop for a man who shod horses for Hollywood Studios. Um, at this time, he was also an active member of the Order of uh, Demolay, a youth organization of the Freemasons. Um, he played football in the 1924 League of Champion League <laughs> League Champion <laughs> Glendale High School team. Uh, Unique New York. Yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> Moving forward considerably, Wayne applied to the U.S. Naval Academy, but he wasn't actually accepted. Um, Instead of going to the U.S. Naval Academy, he instead went to uh, University of Southern California majoring in pre-law, believe it or not. I know. And and get this. I want want to take a step back real quick. When he was working in the ice cream shop with the um, shod horses for the Hollywood Studios where his... um, like main boss was and it's like those are the kind of you know small little ins that you see people have where mm-hmm. you know the, the my ice cream parlor shop boss works with horses for hollywood sets and yeah. you know john wayne would obviously become acquaintances with him and you know that maybe that was you know something that kind of drew john wayne into the western era just because of you know having that relationship with horses or just get his name in hollywood and it's just so insane how Small little things like that could just open a wide net for a career to explode like John Wayne's did. Right. Um, and, and, you know, in, here in a minute we'll move forward a little bit into his first uh, experience into a Hollywood career. Um, and there wasn't a huge role of that... Uh, that, uh, that friend who worked for with Hollywood horses. Um, You know, I'm sure that his name already kind of floating around, maybe a little bit helped. Um, But as we'll see here in a minute, uh, will it it was actually a different venue that he actually got his first start. Uh Um, 
So backing up a little bit just to kind of round out his uh, his uh, college career, Wayne played on the USC football team under coach Howard Jones, but a broken collarbone injury curtailed his, very early on curtailed his athletic career. Uh, and it's kind of a funny, he uh, later on he talked about how he was uh, very afraid of coach Jones's reaction. Um, so... Coach Jones's reaction to uh, the actual cause of the injury, and so he didn't really uh, disclose it too much around the uh, the around that that venue. Um, it was actually body, uh, a body surfing accident. <laughs> Oops. Which, which you know, I mean, like a normal injury is like, yeah, I mean, you've played sports, you you know, it's like, do you? How is coach's reaction going to be to injured on the field, or to rather than uh, injury just doing something dumb in your free time? Yeah, I know. Like I was playing, <laughs> I was trying to play leapfrog with a lawnmower once. Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it was. Uh, I I was just flabbergasted that it was last year on the uh, World Series run. Trevor Bauer injured his hand oh, with a drone. With a drone. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah, because like he would be pitching, and then it would start bleeding a little yeah. bit. You know, like okay, a couple okay. days after that. Mo- came out. Moving back, moving back, we were starting to go on a <laughs> totally crazy tangent. Um, he actually, because of this injury, he lost his scholarship and had to leave the university. Um, but as a favor to the USC uh, football coach Howard Jones, um, who had who had given silent Western film star Tom Mix tickets to USC games. Director John Ford, as well as Mix, hired Wayne as a prop boy and an extra. So look at that. This is actually how he got in. You know, it's, it's one of those things to where, you know, yeah, he ended his college athletic career early, but the result of that and the coach kind of feeling bad and, you know, and that that circumstance directly led to him getting a job as a prop boy and an extra. So I don't. I, it's just kind of one of those things where like one door shuts and another one opens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's all about who you know. It's um, just returning a favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really we've, cool. we've seen that. It seems like we've seen that before. That that's kind of a common theme. Um, and as a side note, going along with that, uh, Wayne would later credit the basically just his John Wayneness, uh, the walk, talk, <laughs> and persona. To his acquaintance with Wyatt Earp, who was at the time very good friends with Tom Mix. I like that. You know what? I think we should put that in the dictionary. John Wayneness. It's a good way to describe. <laughs> it's a good way to describe things. It's a fantastic adjective. It is. <laughs> um, you know, even with this sort of in, he was still just a prop guy um, and an extra. Um, and so, very early on, as with most actors, he had very, very minor, um, often uncredited roles, um, which an example of this would be in the 1926 film uh, Bartolus the Magnificent. Uh, and <laughs> along this, uh, this same period of time, he appeared with his USC teammates playing football at Brown of Harvard 1926, The Dropkick in 1927, and The Salute. Uh, I'm sorry, just salute um, in 1929. So I, I think, 
Go ahead. It, 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 it just fascinates me. I mean, when we were talking about Clint Eastwood and especially John Wayne, back then, these actors would be in movies within years. Like, like he, he, he filmed, produced, and and acted in, like, the... In uh, Brown of Harvard, nineteen twenty-six, the drop pick, nineteen twenty-seven, like those had to be in, in production at the same time of each other, almost. And oh, they, of course, yeah. I and mean, they just crank out these movies. I mean, the amount of the amount of work and passion and dedication that they must have had to this, even if he was in uncredited roles, I think is beyond, you know, beyond the scope of things. Where like, you know, someone like John Wayne is obviously a hard worker in this kind of field, and I think those kind of people are the ones that truly make it. Yeah. That's true. I didn't think about that. I ha- well, I mean, I have thought about that, but I wasn't necessarily going that direction today to where, yeah, I mean, no one, no actors today are in multiple movies a year. Yeah. It just it's usually like that doesn't happen. That one big blockbuster. Yeah. But we see with these uh, older actors, especially around this time period, we don't just see, you know, every once in a while to have a really good year and have a couple of movies. These actors were consistently cranking out movies. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Maybe it was the the overall income from a movie was just less, which required you to work more, or I, I, yeah. I, I don't know. But it, 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 different mean, work the, ethic, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the you know, even if you think back then, you know, this was kind of still like the early onset of huge cinema, you know, mm-hmm. breakthroughs in terms of technology and, and how things are produced. Yeah. Back then, the end credits would take five seconds. <laughs> now it takes 15 minutes. It's like as long and, as the movie. Yeah, I know. And it's like the assistant to the assistant of Robert Downey Jr. It's like, uh, or, or like the, 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 the nose hair trimmer of... <laughs> Chris Evans, yeah, and like they're all credited, and it's it's great. But like John Wayne, you know, John Wayne had a he had to trim his own nose hairs if he wanted to be in a movie. No, he's John Wayne. He doesn't have to trim his nose hairs if he doesn't want to. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they're still cool. You know, I was just thinking about too. A lot of this probably goes to back then. It was still extremely common. It was real well, really the norm that you are you are contracted to your production company. Mm, yeah, for yeah. a set period of time. And uh, a lot of times in older movies, sometimes you see in the, whether it's in the end credits or the opening credits, they'll see um, blah, blah, blah on loan from a different production uh, company. And, you okay, know, cause they okay. would If they really wanted this person, they would have to pay the other production company in addition to the actor or actress to have that. They would yeah. rent them, basically. Interesting. And so maybe huh. that contractual obligation to the production company, you know, I'm sure that that probably... Uh, really uh, spurred a lot of these uh the high output of movies around this time yeah oh no i okay that makes sense Mm -hmm. i like that good input all right so we're going in through his major breakthrough uh director raul walsh saw him moving studio furniture while working as a prop boy and which then in turn cast him in his first starring role in the big trail back in 19 so for his screen name, Walsh suggested Anthony Wayne after Revolutionary War General Mad Anthony Wayne. After Fox Studios chief Winfield Sheehan um, rejected it as sounding too Italian, Walsh then suggested John Wayne, which then became the famous John Wayne Ellington. His pay was raised <laughs> to $105 a week, um, and uh, that's kind of 
how John Wayne got his start. You know what? Honestly, I don't know why I'm saying Ellington. It sounds kind of dumb, but I feel like it just flows off. The no, time. it's supposed to be Gacy. Oh, yeah, John oh, Wayne Gacy. Oh, That's good. Oh, my God. Ooh. Oh, boy. You know, actually, this so, is kind of funny, too. Going along with what you just said about how he got you know, John Wayne, he wasn't even there for that conversation. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it was just like, hey, your, name, your name's John Wayne. Yeah, now. this that whole conversation was, he was not even around for it. They just kind of let him know afterwards, like, hey, we're, we're you know, your name's John Wayne. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe that's why he still liked going by the Duke, because he didn't actually like John Wayne. Which, I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter, because they weren't, you know, it was his screen name. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it wasn't, you know, hey, we are legally changing your name to John Wayne. If you don't like it, get over it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. I guess probably at the time they weren't necessarily expecting it to stick so well. It may, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's it's very interesting. Like that, you bring up a very good point. Yeah. Um, all right. So the big trail was the was to be the first big budget outdoor spectacle of the sound era um, within film. So it was actually made at a then staggering cost of over $2 million using hundreds of extras and wide vistas of the American Southwest, still largely unpopulated at the time of filming. And I mean, if you think about it, $2 million for back then is astronomical amount of money. Like, that's that's a good amount. Um, oh, yeah, especially for a movie budget. You know, this wasn't yeah. $2 million being spent on... Uh, charity work or infrastructure or something like that. it was two million dollars for a movie yeah and so a lot of people would nest would maybe value it a little bit differently um but two million dollars was a lot of stinking money okay. <laughs> i mean to me that's a lot of money anyway no no today, it is but I mean, we, we could live we could live the rest of our days happily on two million dollars yeah well, now you look at movies and they're just, it's ridiculous. I can't remember any of the stats. And to even bring this up, I sh- really should have the stats. But when uh, Martian came out, what was that, three or four years ago maybe? Yeah, I'd probably say three or four um, years ago. Right about the time, I think it was India sent a probe to Mars, I think. Mm. The budget for the movie was actually higher than the cost that it costed india to send an actual spaceship to mars holy crap yeah which that's that's crazy that that is very crazy my mind the the budget for infinity war is almost 400 million dollars 400 million dollars for infinity war that's just it's just nuts it is it's insane uh okay uh let's move on so it was actually filmed in two different versions there's a standard 35 millimeter version as well as another new 70 millimeter grandeur film process using an innovative camera as well as lenses but as awesome and kind of you know revolutionary for its time in the film industry there was actually like despite you know regarded modern modern critics and you know they really actually really enjoyed the film it was considered a huge box office flop at the time but going back to the 70 millimeter um film there was actually only a handful of cinemas that could actually show and operate that kind of film so yeah. although like it kind of started the revolutionary process of the film business and you know better quality um, film and better frame rate 
you know, it, it wasn't necessarily widespread just yet. Right. So they, they, they ended up spending a lot of money for something that was underutilized. And so, especially with the movie being really billed and pushed as this new age in cinematography, you know, the, the super wide, wide angle lens or uh, shots, you know, when people saw it, they, it just wasn't, like you said, it wasn't available to that many people to see. And then that on top of just people ne- not necessarily really liking the movie anyway, uh-huh. you know, I mean, we just talked about $2 million being a lot of money. Well, $2 million to make a movie that was of questionable success, um, <laughs> you know, that doesn't really do much for anyone's career. No, not at all, especially when that was his first named role. Um, so Wayne actually finally became a mainstream star under John Ford's stagecoach back in 1939, almost nine years later after the big trail. Um, and at, at America's entry into World War II, Wayne was exempted from service due to his age. At that time, he was 34 um, when Pearl, Har- Pearl Harbor occurred, um, as well as his family stat- status. He was actually classified as a 3A family deferment. Um, I don't know. Do you know much more about the BA family deferment? No, I, I think it uh, it has something to do with uh, your role. Well, your your role in the family, basically. I mean, if you're if you're kind of on the knife's edge of whether you uh, are eligible for the service or not, they look at things like how dependent is your family on. You're, I mean, are, are you, like, the sole breadwinner of the family? That sort of stuff. Oh, so, like, more income-based and kind of what you, what your role in the family culture is that you're in, in your household? Right. Okay. It, it's not necessarily the specific level of the income, but it's more of how dependent your family is on an individual's sole income. Okay. All right. So um, throughout this time, Wayne would actually repeatedly wrote to John Ford saying he wanted to enlist on one occasion, inquiring whether he could get into Ford's military unit. Um, he really wanted to you know, be out there and support uh, the country as well as, you know, give that sacrifice um, as he's seen the people around him do. So Wayne did not attempt to prevent his uh, reclassification as a 1A draft eligible, but Republic Studios was um, emphatically res- resistant to losing him since he was their only A-list actor under contract. So really his his uh, movie studio was actually reluctant to actually lose him because he was such a prominent, f- becoming a prominent figure and the main, I guess, revenue for the studio itself. And plus he was under contract, so... Yeah, well, they actually threatened to sue if he left, uh, if he left and went into military service. Really? Yes, they did. Interesting. Yep. That's kind of weird. That kind of blurs the lines. I mean, we've talked and bounced the the, uh, the topics around before about kind of, you know, the the rights of actors and musicians and stuff like that. And again, you know, it's kind of back in this time where much of those controversies haven't really come to light because it was such a, a new world of film um, and the way of becoming popular. It was just nothing that was really advocated for just yet. Mm-hmm. Well, it was. Uh, I hope I'm not uh, jumping ahead a little bit too far, but that is, there has been late within later interviews with uh, and friends and close friends and family members and people like that. 
they there's been a lot of talk and accounts that his lack of military service is a pretty driving reason why he's of his patriotism later in life oh in terms of like political activism and all that yeah not necessarily political activism but i mean he turned down movies all the time that he didn't think were american enough um um, and things like that and a lot of it stems from uh i don't necessarily want to say guilt but like like that he didn't get to go do his part so he feels bad and is trying to find his own way of promoting the um american way of life or the american values and so supposedly and this is based off just the accounts of friends and family um that's kind of a major reason why he was so uh pro-american uh patriot in in his movies and off the screen as well and a lot of that comes down to he was just a conservative guy anyway um but you know that's 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 what they say is that one reason why he he showed it so much and there was and then right around this time in the years following this time in the uh the mid to late 40s is when you really saw that to kind of ramp up a little bit Mm -hmm. so just kind of interesting side note to go along with that Oh no, man! I I really appreciate it, and you know I could totally, totally, definitely see that, and especially since he's seen as such a role model for American values and ideals, like we said earlier in the podcast, mm-hmm. um, it makes total sense. So rounding out his kind of breakthrough um, career moment, so Wayne actually toured the U.S. Um, you know, kind of toured bases, hospitals, as well throughout the South Pacific for three months. Um, in 1943 as well as 1944 with the USO to kind of bring morale um, around and, and you know and meet the the troops who have boots on the ground um, and all that. So the U.S. National Archives rec- records indicate that Wayne had in fact made an application to serve the Office of Strategic Strategic Services, the OSS, and it was a pre- which is a precursor to the modern CIA. Um, and he had actually been accepted within the U.S. Army's allotted um, billet to the OSS. So he was actually accepted to serve in as a position within the now known as CIA. He was, but there is more to that story. All right, let's hear it. He was accepted, but he never knew it. They never let him know? Well, they sent a letter to him, but he never received the letter because it was sent to his estranged wife, Josephine's house address. And... Oh, my... I would have to assume just the fact that she was estranged probably (laughs) meant she wasn't necessarily forwarding his mail to him. (laughs) Probably Um, not. And so he never knew. And so he had been kind of hee-hawing back and forth about, you know, the whole serving, uh, serving in the armed forces during World War II, and he pushed to try to do some work with the OSS and turns out he was actually accepted but he never got that chance because he was never notified. Wow. Isn't that insane? How different would not even just pop culture but John Wayne and the in the movie industry be if that would have happened in the mid forties? Yeah. Can you imagine I, yeah. John Wayne as a secret agent? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's and who knows what I I mean I they're not gonna be sending John Wayne out on secret life or death missions i mean <laughs> I let's be honest they're not doing i get that's true um, they, they'd probably use they probably actually have him still star in films but use it as like some sort of code 
So like they would show it over to like other, you know, intelligence bases and stuff overseas or whatever and it would be a code for some some way of attack <laughs> or some sort of espionage intel. Uh there you go. Um, <laughs> you know, g- going along with that too. I think I d- I didn't write it down and I don't I didn't even write it in my own notes, let alone uh show notes and I wish I had. But there was I I remember reading there was a section about how Joseph Stalin was actually enjoyed his movies, John Wayne's oh, movies. Oh, okay. okay. But John Wayne, because of his very anti-communism, pro-American and capitalism and just his overall patriotism, um, there was actually, for a short period of time, supposedly there were plots to either assassinate or kidnap John Wayne. And this would be after World War II. Um, moving into kind of the Cold War yeah, uh, stuff. But yeah, and you know, that kind of stuff, who knows if that's the truth to that. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, it's just kind of an interesting thing that I read as well, and I wish I would have actually put more specifics into notes. I could, you know, I could always go back and look for it, I suppose, but um, I thought that was pretty interesting as well. No, it is super interesting. <laughs> I'd like to just, you know, go on to believe that there was probably some sort of murmur of... Uh, of talks about doing that just because it makes it all interesting, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. uh, take her away. Going into kind of the, his career height and his commercial success. Um, John Wayne's first color film was actually shepherd of the Hills in 1941, where he co-starred with his ex- very longtime friend, uh, Harry Carey. What a name. What a name. <laughs> um, the, the following year, uh, this kind of goes back to just pumping out movies, the next year, uh, he appeared in his only film directed by Cecil B. DeMille, uh, the Technicolor epic Reap the Wild Wind in 1942. Um, that is not a movie I'm familiar with. Me neither. <laughs> Uh, but I am familiar with several of these. One of Wayne's most popular roles was in the High and the Mighty, 1954, directed by William uh, Wellman, based off a novel by Ernest K. Gann. Uh, and this is kind of a common theme. You know, he's really known for his westerns. I mean, that's just what you uh-huh. when you imagine John Wayne, he's wearing uh, a cowboy hat. Just, yep. and that's just what you imagine. But uh, this portrayal of a heroic co-pilot won widespread acclaim and also led to his portrayal of other aviators, such as the fly in the Flying Tigers in 1942, Flying Leathernecks 1951, Island in the Sky 1953, Wings of Eagles 1957, and Jet Pilot 1957, as well as others. These are just you know the top names. Um, yeah, and so he he was just kind of known for the. Uh, uh, the the military aviators as well, and he did have several other just military movies in general, um, which are also uh, fantastic. Uh, just as basically everything he was involved with, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> everything he touched, <laughs> right? Um, and but it's just kind of odd. That's you know not necessarily what he was mainstream known for, but he was also very prominent in those roles. 
Yeah. I mean, you could even see how we, I mean, you, we've talked a lot about his patriotism. I feel like this is a way for himself to, you know, serve his people and the country as well. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of demonstrating the heroism that, you know, they demonstrated in real life. You know, he wanted to, to bring that into the oh, entertainment agency. Oh, and, right, right. And, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that goes along with what we were, just his his patriotism that we, we talked about just a few minutes ago. Um, especially in this time period where, um, you know, even, even late 50s, you know, people still kind of basking in that uh, overall euphoria, post-World War II euphoria. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, Boy, that was that was some fancy word skipping there. That was very fancy. <laughs> I think we just lost half of our subscribers because they're like, "What? Since when did these guys get smart?" <laughs> okay, uh, <laughs> he would end up appearing in nearly two dozen of John Ford, Ford's, wow, John Ford's films over twenty years, <laughs> um, which is, I mean, two dozen uh, from you know the same guy. Uh, these included She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, 1949, The Quiet Man, 1952, Wings of Eagles, like we talked about before, 1957, um, and, of course, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance in 1962 with Jimmy Stewart, another great. Um, and kind of a side note, the first movie in which he called someone Pilgrim. I know. I mean, even <laughs> before we hit the record button, Ben was like, if there's two movies... If there's two movies you have to watch as John Wayne, it is for sure the man who shot Liberty Valance as the number one to watch. Um, and you know what? I I, I take that the- as a hit to my – it's a hit to my own confidence, the fact that I haven't really dived much into John Wayne things. You know, I kind of grew up more Clint Eastwood-based. Um, you know, I do appreciate who John Wayne was, but I by far do not or have not seen any John Wayne movies um, as much as I appreciate them. You know, they can, John Wayne movies can range quite a bit. They can be the same overall genre, but they can go from really serious to just kind of quirky and goofy at the same time. Like McClintock, um, you know, he's kind of this, it's just a, almost like a Western comedy kind of thing. There's a huge mud fight in the middle of it (laughs) and just a, just goofiness. And then it can go to more serious stuff there's more serious stuff than you know the man who shot liberty valance and the shooters those are just the prominent ones that come to my mind right now as we're talking about them um but you know they're all it seems like he plays the same character but his just they picked him up and plopped him in a different setting you know and yeah i don't know they're it's it's hard to describe i mean that's that's kind of why i like him because it kind of ranges so so much yeah, yeah. In the Which same is, kind of movie. Definitely shows off his multifaceted talents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to kind of round out his the, the, the late 50s, early 60s career height for John Wayne, we have Ford's The Searchers in 1956, which is often considered to contain Wayne's finest and most complex performance. Um, and he would actually end up naming his youngest son Ethan after his character from that movie. That's that's pretty cool, especially since it had such a profound impact on himself as and and, and his career. Mm-hmm. So, okay, we're going to shift into the last couple of major things here uh, for episode 38. So his later career for John Wayne, um, he actually won Best Actor Oscar for The True Grit back in 1969. I mean, that one definitely rings a bell because I know he was... Um, 
very well known and profound in that movie as well. Um, this came 20 years after his only other nomination, um, you know, for an Oscar. So I think it was definitely well deserved. Uh, Wayne was also nominated as the producer of Best Picture for the Alamo back in 1960, one of two films he actually directed. So the other was the Green Berets in 1968, the only major film made during the Vietnam War to, to actually support the ideas. Um, and, the, and the reason why the war was happening, which is actually really interesting, um, going along with, you know, John Wayne's idealistic, you know, values towards, um, you know, his his movie career. Um, during the filming of the Green Berets, the Degar or uh, Montenard people of Vietnam's Central Highlands uh, were actually fierce fighters against communism. They bestowed a Wayne um, brass bracelet that he wore in the film and all subsequent and all subsequent films, which Crap. is really cool. I think I, yeah, I think I butchered that a little bit. So, <laughs> the people in Vietnam's Central Highlands, who were actually fierce fighters against communism, they actually gave Wayne a brass bracelet, which he actually wore on screen for the rest, um, oh, for the for the most of the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. These these are the people that the United States and the allies of that war were fighting with against. Um, the Viet North Cong Vietnam. and the, yeah, the, the, Viet. the 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 Chinese communists during that war, um, and so basically this was just as a symbol of their appreciation for him and his support. They gave okay. him a brass bracelet that he wore in the film as well as all subsequent films, and that is something that I did not know before prepar- uh, preparing for this show. And now that I think about it, you know, you I, I have definitely noticed a brass bracelet and i just never thought twice about it at the time Mm -hmm. um but now i'm definitely going to be uh noticing that more as i watch movies post 19 john wayne movies post 1968 yeah i think that's a very 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 cool uh, little fact um his last film was The Shootist in 1976, whose main character, J.B. Books, was dying of cancer, the illness to which Wayne himself actually succumbed three years uh, thereafter. Wayne also appeared in the top ten moneymakers poll of all films from 1949 to 1957 and 1958 to 1974, taking first place in 1950, 1951, 1954, and finally 1971. I know this was a cool fact that you really wanted uh, to talk about as well. So with a total of 25 years on the list, Wayne has more appearances than any other star, even surpassing Clint Eastwood, who we talked about last week, um, as he appeared 21 times, um, and he comes in second place. So John Wayne has appeared most often on top paid actors list. Mm -hmm. He appeared 25 times. Yeah, you know, how awesome is it that two of the guys in this short series um, are first and second place for most appearances on the uh, top 10 moneymakers poll? Oh, my. I think, think, you know, it just really, honestly, what we should have done and just had that fact, and then the show would be over. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we (laughs) totally could have. You know, uh, on some future show... I know we always say we're going to do stuff, but we never write it down. But we should l- find that list, the top ten moneymakers, um, or the, I'm sorry, the uh, the the list ranking the invi- the 
most appearances on the top 10 moneymakers, if that makes oh, any okay. sense. No, I, um, I get it. Because I wonder who else is on this list that John Wayne and Clint Eastwood have surpassed. That's something yeah. that we're going to have to look up as well. No, yeah, I agree. I think that'd be I think that'd be a really cool episode to break down. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, as as always, we're unfortunately moving into the death of John Wayne um, as we kind of wrap up the show a little bit. So, although he enrolled in a cancer vaccine study in an attempt to ward off the disease, uh, Wayne died of stomach cancer at the age of 72 on June 11, 1979 at the UCLA Medical Center. Um, you know, there's... This isn't the first time he had struggled with cancer in his life. He, years prior, and I cannot remember the year off the top of my head, he had an actual uh, entire lung removed along with several ribs. Mm. Um, and supposedly he had been uh, totally declared totally cancer-free, and he was fine for several several more years. Um, and there was a, there's kind of a little bit up in the air... Um, well, well, for, okay, for starters, I mean, he did smoke, he was been a chain smoker since his, he was a teenager. Oh, yeah. Um, and he would talk about, you know, smoking six packs a day. I know. Which is crazy. <laughs> that is very crazy. Um, but he's also wrapped up in the group of actors and actresses who have been diagnosed with cancer after filming in the desert. Um, yes. Do you know yes. the name of that movie off the top of your head? I I have it here in the show notes. Actually, is right here among the cast of The Conqueror oh. back in 1956. <laughs> Should have scrolled so down on a site bit. of uh, on site of filming it was actually near St. George, Utah, um, and actually 91 of the cast and the crew developed some sort of cancer um, at various times, including other film stars within that uh, time period. So anyway, you could finish up the fact, but The Conqueror is what it was. Right. Okay. Yeah. I <laughs> should have just looked down a little bit. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that was when this was around the time he was first diagnosed with lung cancer. Um, and he kind of blew it off and, you know, acknowledged that so many people ended up getting cancer after filming of The Conqueror. But he, it, it, you know, he would ultimately pretty much blame, like, hey, I, it was because I smoked six packs of cigarettes oh. a day. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, let, yeah. let's not point fingers here. It was pretty much because <laughs> I screwed up. Um, but, I mean, well, well, the, well, the biggest thing is about, like, filming at the Conqueror in the desert is because um, where the location was in Utah is actually east and generally downwind from the site of recent U.S. government nuclear weapons tests over in southwest, southeastern Nevada. Mm-hmm. So kind of people were, were, you know, were talking about, that possibility of that, you know, nuclear exposure that could have caused this kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Being downwind of that, I mean, there is definitely a, a serious risk of coming into contact with fallout and just residual uh, nuclear material left in the atmosphere. Yeah, um, and that's that's a hard thing to predict because it's so dependent on weather conditions. Uh huh. And you know, one day it might you know be a relatively isolated concentrated incident on the next day the weather patterns could totally change and it could blow it hundreds of miles outside of the original designated zone oh yeah Um, and so i mean i I think we've talked about 
talked about the conqueror conqueror a little bit in the past i think it's popped up in uh uh this month in histories okay i think um where we've not necessarily dived too deep into it but i i I do remember talking about it a little bit in in uh prior shows yeah i mean you know kind of just wrapping it up when you're talking about the weather i mean yeah they're in the desert but it does rain occasionally in the desert so you know if something would happen where you know, just another way to be exposed to that kind of stuff where it was kind of held up in the atmosphere and then it was brought down in them mm-hmm. while it rained. You know, that's just kind of something that complicates things. Oh, yeah, time. definitely. I mean, any sort of precipitation has to have some sort of particle to start uh, to condense to. Uh-huh. You uh-huh. know, like snowflakes are formed around normally dust particles or anything like that. Same with water droplets. Um, and so if there was nuclear material potentially up there, that would be another way that, you know, it could... Uh, fall back to the ground and become uh, hazardous. So there you go. So okay, moving forward a little bit, we've been stuck on that for a little while. It's interesting stuff, <laughs> but you know we don't want to burn all of our time on it. So feo fuerte y formal, a Spanish epitaph meaning ugly, strong, and dignified. Um, so his grave, which went unmarked for twenty years, is now marked with a quotation for his controversial 1971 Playboy interview. Tomorrow is the most important thing in life. Comes into us at midnight, very clean. It's perfect when it arrives, and it puts itself in our hands. It hopes we've learned something from yesterday. I just think it's really interesting that his grave actually went unmarked for 20 years. I mean, just for the amount of popularity and what he stood for and what people saw him as, I thought it was very interesting. Um yeah, but. yeah, that's that's true, you know, but it also I was kind of thinking about it as he was a guy that isn't like modern celebrities that we know of who thrive on the attention. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is surprising that he would go unmarked for 20 years, but also not surprising at the same time to where, you know, he's not going to be a guy that wants a big flashy mausoleum built. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, true. With strobe lights and all kinds of stuff. That's very true. All right, that's kind of jumping but, the shark a little bit, but no, you know what I mean. No. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I, I totally get it. Oh, boy. Okay, so that's a wrap. Thank you again so much for joining us here at Young Nostalgia this week as we continue our journey through retro pop culture. As always, if you enjoy the show, leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Um, like I said, we have been able to congregate enough reviews to be able to you know, have a 5.0 on Apple Podcasts, which is amazing. We really appreciate the shout-outs and the amazing times we've shared with you guys and it's great to know that you guys are enjoying what you hear um, but again you know go out there rate us again let us know what you think give us an email at youngnostalgia2017 at gmail.com with any personal um, comments or criticism if you'd like but uh, we're out there on Stitcher Podbean Google Play um, pretty much Spotify anywhere that you get your, your your favorite podcast we're out there and you can take us anywhere so if you got a future topic or want to be a guest with Ben and I again give us an email youngnostalgia2017 at gmail.com that's the wrap up of episode 38 anything else big guy no you know no I think it went, I, that was a really fun show um, but as with a lot of shows like this there is so much stuff that we had to weed through and skip just because of time allotments. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, the same goes with uh, you know other actors, actresses, uh, celebrities, politicians, anything, any, even just general events that we've talked about. 
we've had to weed so much stuff out and it's such a bummer sometimes when going through and like ah is this relevant enough to go in the show no but it's really awesome at the same time yeah no it it, it makes it really it makes it really hard i i agree um and you know i don't want anybody to think that we're so comprehensive in in terms of who we talk about it's definitely a quick and dirty thing could be yeah, it's just something that we really love touching the surface of and sharing the passion that we appreciate of these retro pop culture icons or events. Um, and, you know, we just like to talk about it. We like to learn more about it by diving in and doing some research. Uh, you know, and sometimes those odd tidbits of facts that we actually delete out comes in candid when we're talking. Like some of these things that we find out more about, you know, some of our favorite people or these pop culture icons are things that we just remember in research, but we can't exactly put into long-winded words in our show notes. So then we just kind of discuss it and then snowball every now and then. But uh, yeah, that's kind of, I guess we're kind of diving into our creative process of young nostalgia. <laughs> Uh, welcome to behind the scenes where everything where everything's made up and nothing matters (laughs) yeah if you're keeping score at home (laughs) Uh, yeah send us an email if you know what show that's been yeah i know right (laughs) 10 points 10 points to wayne brady uh anything else big guy uh nope i got nothing else I loved it, man. Great show. As we always say here on The Young Nostalgia. <laughs> Keep the bottles empty and the ashtrays full. Pilgrim. Take care. Of... <laughs> what? <laughs> Pilgrim. Oh. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Yeah. <laughs>